John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the vine dresser. I don't like that word. Gardener or farmer would be an adequate translation there as well. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, Jesus says. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered, they're thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, Jesus says. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, Jesus writes, says, so that you will love one another. This also is God's word to us this morning. We're starting, we're going to spend the, the month of January in a series that we're just calling Abide. You can see the graphic up on the screen. And what the hope is with this is that it's, a, it's an opportunity for us as a church family again to recalibrate. We did this last January. We're going to do it again this January. We may do it again the following January. I don't know. But what I do know is that we, as the people of God, we need to practice. We need to uh, modify our abiding. We need to uh, rehearse and to practice and to live into this command of Jesus to abide, to root ourselves in him. And so we have a couple of gifts for you. We've got some bracelets that, that have the Abide logo on them. They're on the doorway as you go out. Just grab one. There's some for kids. There's little ones. And there are some for adults as well. And then we also have a gift for you too. It's a book called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. The subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It says on the back, Christians know what Jesus Christ, know what Jesus Christ has done, but who is he? What is his deepest heart for his people, weary and faltering on their journey toward heaven? Jesus said he is gentle and lowly or humble in heart. This book reflects on these words, opening up a neglected yet central truth about who he is for sinners and sufferers today. And that is all of us. So Crossway has donated these books to our church and we are giving them away to you. So please, if you're a guest with us and may never return, take a book, please read it and enjoy it. And if you're a member or a part of all of life, please take one of these books home with you. Um, transitioning to where we're going to be today, I'm actually going to use an acrostic uh, to, on the word abide to just guide us through 
uh, this series in the month of January. So this message today is just titled, Attention. Attention. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. The next week, we're going to look at what it means to bear lasting fruit through deepening roots. The third week on the 16th of January, in Christ, we persevere. Uh, The fourth week, depend on prayer. There's some key texts in this passage about what it means to pray and to ask. And then the last week is extensive joy in the love of Christ. We could preach this chapter a number of different ways. I've never used an acrostic before. This is my first time. I'm a rookie. But I figured, you know, it'll help help just guide us and give us a little bit of focus uh, this month. And I hope that, that you, today my aim, is that you would find yourself looking to God that he's calling you and I to attention. What we look at most regularly shapes how we live. What you and I look at, what we see most regularly, it shapes how we live. Did you know that your eyes actually, your physical eyes require an amazing portion of your brain's energy? There are about 11 million receptors in our brain that are taking in all kinds of different information. And about 10 million of those receptors are used in some way. Vision uses those or calls on 10 million, 91% of our brain's receptors. Vision is in some way related to. Some experts say that half of our brain's resources are actually used on vision. A slight change in what you and I see will have a very big effect on how we live. If you don't believe me, let's put a blindfold on you and ask you to just run full sprint through this room. We adjust based on what we can see. What we look at most regularly actually shapes how we live, and how we live directs who we actually become. The things that we give ourselves to on a regular basis, that we're looking at on a regular basis, have a shaping effect, and they actually, they, they, they form an identity, and they form who we actually become over time. I've been reading this book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's a fantastic book. Um, it's on the psychology of habit making and habit breaking. And um, the psychology of habit, habit breaking and, and making proves this time and time again, that small, even minimal changes in, uh, over, small, over periods of time yield really large results. He tells the story of a British cycling team where they, 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 they were total losers in the Tour de France and all of these different um, these different races that they were involved in and they resolved this new coach came on and he resolved to try to make this team one percent better every single day and so he just he they I mean it it went to like cleaning out the trailer and painting instead of a trailer being the bike trailer being black they painted it white so that they could see all of the specks of dust and so that they could keep this thing completely clean they looked at their gear they looked at their like haircuts they looked at all of like body hair everything and they were just incrementally trying to make themselves 1% better. And within, I think, like five years, they won five Tour de France's in a row. Or in, over the course of seven years, I think they won five of them. When we design our environments and our days in such a way that we are consistently on the lookout for God, it will have an incredible, profound effect on our lives. 
we will be amazed as we seek God. We'll be amazed at the ways that he is at work around us and for us. And so I want you to ask yourself the question, is it my habit? Ask yourself, is it my habit to slow my body, to quiet my soul to the degree that I'm able, and to focus my attention on God? Is that our habit? Slow our mind, quiet our soul, focus our attention on God. This, that, as a habit of habits, is a habit worth giving your life to. We fail, we falter, we stumble all day long in all kinds of ways, do we not? And yet, we get back up and we continue to prioritize God as priority. Here's the big idea this morning. Attend to God and you will be amazed at the ways that he is attending to you. Attend to him, and you will be amazed at the ways that he attends to you. He's revealed himself. We can see this in, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute. You say, like, I can't see Jesus. Neither can I, but I can't see Elon Musk either, who's apparently still alive. I can't see any of the other people who have died, though I am sure that, that people in history have truly lived. I'm reading this fascinating book right now about our second president. Do you know what his name is? What's our second president's name? John Adams. It's written by a guy named David McCullough, and it's this, this he's a fantastic uh, writer on history. He's just, I mean, if, you, if you're a history buff, like read David McCullough's stuff. Anyways, I'm reading this book on John Adams, and we don't have any photographs of John Adams at all. He lived in the 1700s, so we can't see him either. But as I'm reading this book, and it's long, it's like 650 pages, and before you think I'm awesome, I'm like six pages, seven pages at a time. I've been in it for three months, and I'm only halfway through. But as I'm reading this book on his life, something really profound is happening. I'm thinking about John Adams more than I ever have in my entire life. Dude was not even a blip on my radar screen for 43 years. And now as I'm reading this book, I'm actually thinking, now that I'm reading about him, I'm thinking of him almost on a daily basis. Like how this guy is handling stress during the revolution and post-revolution and how he's navigating things as the first ambassador to uh, foreign ambassador of the United States. You could say in a way that I'm actually seeing John Adams. I'm actually seeing him in some ways through this writer, David McCullough. The Apostle John, going back, he lived with Jesus of Nazareth for a period of about three years. And they shared all kinds of life together. They, they traveled together. Jesus was an itinerant preacher and healer. And so John was part of this party of disciples that traveled with Jesus. So there's a number of campfires. There is probably hundreds and hundreds of shared meals. Like John saw Jesus with stuff in his teeth. Like he saw Jesus in the flesh as he was. And he not only saw him like that, but he also saw Jesus's miracles. And he saw the people, and the ways that Jesus healed. And he came, John came to believe that Jesus was actually the Messiah who the Hebrews, his own people, had been looking out for for thousands of years. And Jesus made such an impact on the apostle John that John ended up patterning, patterning his life after Jesus. 
He ended up becoming a pastor of some small churches because of Jesus. John thought that he was just going to be like his dad, and he was going to grow up in the family business and be a fisherman. But once he saw Jesus, once he encountered Jesus, once he experienced him, everything changed for John. And John wrote this biographical sketch of Jesus called John's Gospel that we've been reading out of. But he also wrote three small letters to some churches, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, toward the end of your Bible. And then he also wrote the very last book, The Revelation of John. And in uh, these, one of these letters, 1 John, here's how he opened the letter of 1 John to this, to this church. Listen to this. It's up on the screen. You can read it there too. He says, that which was from... So, Remember, Dave earlier just read from John's Gospel, chapter 1, talking about Jesus coming to his own people, the light of the world, but people rejected him. Now John, again, he says something similar. He says, that which was from the beginning, he's speaking of Jesus here, which we have, listen to this, heard. They heard his voice. They knew the tone of Jesus' voice, his actual voice, his human voice, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, we've touched with our own hands. Concerning this word of life, that's a euphemism for Jesus, this life was made manifest, manifested himself so that we could see him. And we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, was shown to us. That which we have seen with our eyes and we have heard, we proclaim also to you, so now we're proclaiming, he's proclaiming it to some people in some churches who haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. We're proclaiming him to you so that you too may have fellowship with us so that we're now one, you believe, we believe. And indeed our, that's everybody together, fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Apostle uh, Paul would also say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus made visible the God who we can't see. He put on flesh. He took on flesh and, and made God's image and likeness and goodness and mercy and attributes visible to humanity. And another disciple, a guy named Peter, wrote something similar in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 8, he said, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you still rejoice with the kind of joy that is inexpressible. So I think what Peter is saying here is that there's a kind of seeing that sees, though it doesn't see. The disciples lived with Jesus, yeah, they saw him with their eyes, yet even after Jesus commissioned and left them, he didn't leave them fully. He sent them the Holy Spirit who would guide them along and help them continue to see Jesus. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit helped the disciples and everyone after see Jesus is through inspiring them to write portions of the Bible that we hold in our hands so that through their seeing, you and I now see. Through the Holy Spirit's transforming work in us, we can see by faith. Here's something cool. The idea of seeing gets even bigger. The disciples all saw Jesus with their eyes, but the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John is really intentional in, in his first chapter that Dave read to us, a portion of it, just continuing on. 
he's really intentional about recording how Jesus saw the disciples too. And in, in chapter one, he tells the story of how they all came to know Jesus. And he says things like this, quote, Jesus turned and saw them and then invited. He said, come and you will see. You'll see what I'm doing. You'll see what I'm up to. And then Jesus encounters Peter a couple of sentences later. And it says, we read that Jesus looked at Peter. That's what John says. Quote, he looked at him. And then Jesus finds Philip. And Philip goes and finds a friend of his, Nathaniel. And Jesus has this, these are all disciples. This is describing the calling of the first disciples. And Jesus has this wild experience with Nathaniel where it says that he saw, quote, saw Nathanael, and then he says, as Nathanael is walking towards him, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael had never seen or really knew about Jesus until Philip just told him about Jesus. And he's like, what are you talking about? You don't know me. And Jesus says to him, while you were sitting under the fig tree hours ago, I saw you. And there was something, like Jesus saw Nathanael through time. He wasn't present. Jesus is saying, I can see beyond what you see. And he's saying to Nathaniel and to us, I see you. He sees you. Jesus, alive today, the resurrected man, sees you and I. He sees us. And his sight isn't limited by walls or by time or by anything else. In one place in the Bible, it says that Jesus actually knew the, the thoughts of those in the crowds. He knew their thoughts. So Jesus can see through time and into people's thoughts. And he heals diseases and he makes food appear out of nowhere. He's this amazing human being who is more than a human being. And in metaphor, in the verse that we're going to be in this morning, he says, I am the true vine. Which means that he's our life source. It's not an abstract statement either. This one line, we're just spending one line this morning, John 15, 1. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. This is not an abstract statement. It is filled, filled, filled deep with history. So remember this morning, the big idea that I'm just driving at is attend to God, get our eyes up on him, and we will be amazed at the ways that he attends to us. John 15, 1, I've already said it, I'm going to say it again, I want it in our minds, interact with your Bibles too, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. If you use the ESV, it might say a vine dresser, but like I said, I don't, I don't like that translation, because what is a vine dresser? Let's be honest, we don't know what a vine dresser is, but when I say gardener, you're like, oh, he tends the vines, he's a farmer, sorts. So think about... Um, Think about the first two words in this statement. What is Jesus, what are the first two words that he says here? I am. I am is a massive statement in the entire Bible. The entire Bible, Old and New Testaments, I am is used to refer to Yahweh. And Jesus in John's gospel uses this phrase, I am. He has these seven I am statements in John's gospel. He'll say, I am the bread of life, meaning I nourish you. 
I take care of you. I feed your soul. He'll say, I am the light of the world. I, I light things up in such a way that you have eyes to see. The eyes of our own hearts are enlightened to know that he is God, to discern between good and evil. He'll say things like, I am the door of the sheep, meaning you've got to come through me to your father, the shepherd. He'll even say that I'm the good shepherd. That's his fourth I am statement. I am the good shepherd. He'll say, I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, you're not going to stay that way. He'll say, this one's famous and pretty well known, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he'll also say, I am the true vine. These I am statements, they loom really, really large in the mind and in the sight of any Israelite that is hearing them in this day. Like if I ask you today, who's our president? You've got an answer. So if I asked a Hebrew at that time, who is the I am? They too would have an answer. Going back about 1,500 years, this guy named Moses, uh, he encountered God while Yahweh, while Israel was in captivity in Egypt. And he's esteemed as this prophet of prophets for the Israelites. And in Moses's origin story as their prophet, he encounters God and he's given these instructions that he's going to go to Israel on behalf of Yahweh. He doesn't know the name Yahweh at this point. Yahweh hadn't even given it to him at this point. And he's to present himself as their leader. Hey guys, I'm going to lead you out of captivity, out of this foreign country. And so naturally Moses had some questions. And Moses says to God in response in Exodus 3, he says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Like, how do, how do we know you're actually telling the truth? What am I going to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is an, a, a, an eternally, perfectly present statement. I am consistently in all times and seasons, history, past, future, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of generations has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So this phrase, I am here is a name and it's a title that Israelites have assigned to God for over 1500 years. And now Jesus arrives on the scene in the flesh. He's an adult. He's doing some crazy stuff. And in John's gospel, he starts using these I am statements. And about the second time when he starts to talk about him being the light of the world, the Pharisees really start to tangle with him. He's in conflict with these religious rulers of his, of his day, and he's in conflict about his authority, and they're in conflict with him about his origins. Like, who are you? Where do you come from? How do you say these things? Remember, he's doing staggering stuff like healing people, like freeing people of demonic oppression. He's also saying really concerning stuff like your sins are forgiven. Nobody but God can forgive sins. Who are you? You're a man right in front of us in the flesh. Like, you can't be God. Now he starts talking about God, who they know and who they revere as I am. And he gets under their skin even more right away by calling I am his own father. He's referring to the I am, this eternally present, perfect God as his father. Hebrews, they saw God as God and somewhat distant. They wouldn't even write his name. 
they, uh, they were extremely reverent and they, 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 had, they, they saw God's, they, they recognized God's holiness and they shuddered rightly in his presence, but they did not see God as their intimate paternal father. And Jesus starts calling God, this I am, his father. In fact, in the Old Testament, God is only referred to as father three times. In the Old Testament, three times. And it's, it's calling him like father of the nations. So it's still kind of distant. It's like it's out there, right? You know how many times he is referred to as father in the New Testament? 273. Three times in the old, 273 in the new, 276 total. And Jesus is the one who introduced this. Remember when he was a boy um, and his parents, they were going to Jerusalem for the census and they were traveling back. You know, there's this wild kind of party of people. They actually lost track of Jesus. And he goes back to the, to the synagogue and he is, um, they find him a couple of days later. Where were you? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house as a 12-year-old? He's already saying these kinds of things. Then, um, as Jesus is describing God as his father with these Pharisees in this moment, they really lock horns when he says that their father is actually the devil. <laughs> Your father, like that's going to make anybody mad, right? <laughs> he goes all the way even beyond Moses, and he goes to the first Hebrew, a guy named Abraham, God spoke to and said, out of your offspring, I will bless the nations. He says to them, they're kind of enraged, already gnashing their teeth at him, super irritable, tense, tight. It's going to be a fight. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And in this moment when he says this, they try to kill him right there on the spot for blasphemy. Jesus is all about his relationship to the Father as his close, paternal Father. And he's going to develop this idea even further in John's Gospel. As you progress through John's Gospel, Jesus keeps ramp. John's recording all of Jesus' words, and he just keeps ramping up this talk about God as Father. And when you start to get into the latter half of chapter 13 and all of chapter 14, it gets like Father, 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 Father. If you read it, the word count is really high, just the word Father. And he says things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Plain English, if you've seen me, you've seen God. He wasn't saying that he is the Father. He's saying that he's one with the Father. So here's what I want you to know. The first two words of John chapter 15 are loaded with history, redemptive history. He's saying, I am eternal. I am God. And then he says, I am the true vine, meaning our source of life. And what he's doing here is distinguishing himself from Israel. In the Old Testament, the vine or a vineyard, it is a common symbol for Israel. They refer to themselves as a vine. They're the covenant people of God. They, they think of themselves as the life-giving vine of the world. And so as Jesus is saying this statement, I am the true vine, he's indicating that he is what Israel has failed to be. They were to be a light to the nations. They failed in that task. He's saying, I'm the light of the world. Israel, continually wayward. Jesus, continually faithful. 
As a kid, I don't know if you have these kind of memories, but I grew up in the 80s, and I remember being on the playground um, with other kids, and we'd have these little one-off conversations. For some reason, I still remember, I was at Bora Elementary, and I remember one of these conversations where we were talking about the United States, and we're like, nobody, nobody can kick the United States' butt. And we're like, you know, we agree with each other and just kind of move on. Could, wouldn't be Russia, wouldn't be, it was like a non-issue. Nobody could defeat the United States. One of our past presidents, George Bush, the first, called us in one of his addresses a shining city, America. He called us a shining city on a hill. Ronald Reagan before him said that America is, quote, the exemplar of freedom and a beacon of hope for those who do not now have freedom. Obama in his inaugural speech said our founding father's ideals, quote, still light the world and that we will play our part in, quote, ushering in a new era of peace. So the idea that a nation can see themselves as a beacon of hope for the world, it's not foreign to us as Americans. This is how Israel saw themselves. But America, sorry, is not the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That title is reserved for him alone. He supersedes all of our politics, all of our nationalities, all of our ethnicities, all of our preferences. He is our source of life. Back to this idea of vines. They're all over the temple, Israel's temple in Jerusalem. They're on the doors. They're on the curtains inside and the walls inside the temple. They actually have a vine, a picture of a vine printed on some of their coins and certainly in their Hebrew Bibles. I'll give you three quick examples of why, uh, just context in the Old Testament for how Israel saw themselves as a vine. Jeremiah 2. God says, I planted you a choice vine from the very best seed. How then could you turn into a degenerate foreign vine? In Isaiah chapter 5, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Psalm 80, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Israel out of Egypt, a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations, Canaan, and you planted that vine in the promised land. A theologian named D.A. Carson, he says, most remarkable is the fact that whenever, follow me on this, whenever historical Israel is referred to under this figure of a vine or a vineyard, what the Old Testament, what the Hebrew Bible is bringing out is the vine's failure to produce good fruit. That's what's being emphasized in all of these texts about Israel being a vine. And there's always a corresponding note of or threat of God's judgment on the nation of Israel. I'll give you an example, Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Listen to this. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So by Jesus here referring to himself as the true vine, he's indicating that he is what Israel has failed to be. And so as the true vine, he is producing what Israel has failed to produce. The Father, who is one with the Son, Jesus, in John 15, we read it, and we're going to get to it next week, he is looking for good fruit. Jesus' fruit, the fruitfulness of his life, the outcome of his life, it's good, while Israel's has consistently been spoiled fruit. 
And so in John 15, especially in verse 5, Jesus is explicitly calling his followers and disciples to root themselves into him, into the true vine. To abide in Christ is to reside. To abide is to stay put there. It's to reside. And the good fruit that our God is looking for can only come through branches or through tendrils that are deeply attached or residing within the vine and the trunk. He says, I am eternal, the true vine, the source of life, and my father is the gardener. We talked a little bit about how he equated himself with the father. In John 15, Jesus continues to intensify and outright just name this oneness that he has with father. And here is Jesus' point in all of that. He's not, he and the father are not negotiating. They're not debating what to do with the world. Like Jesus is the good guy that's just kind of sanding off all of the the grumpy old man's rough edges. That's not what's happening in John 15. He and the Father are one. They're one in mind, one, one in heart, one in purpose, one in intention, one in love. And so in this metaphor, the gardener is directing the vine. Jesus would say, I've come to do all that the Father has told me to do. I've done the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify me with yourself like I had with you in the beginning. Sometimes the gardener, the father, he prunes. So the branches in this metaphor, we'll talk more about this next week. The the metaphor of the branches represent people who are in Christ. The purpose of pruning is so that we would produce good fruit and experience an outcome in verse 11 and then also in verse 12 of John chapter 15, that our joy may be complete and also that our love would be a kind of complete relational love. So maybe you're wondering like, okay, man, all of the history, what in the world does this actually have to do with my life in the here and now? Here's what it has to do with your life in the here and now. Jesus is still I am. He's as I am as he was with Abraham. He's as I am as he was with Moses, as he was with his apostles. He is eternally present to you and I, and he is our life source, our source of nourishment. All things, the scriptures say, are sustained and hold together by the word of his power. And he and our Father are one in purpose. They're not, Jesus isn't the nice guy. The two testaments aren't one God here and another God here. The the whole storyline of scripture is telling one story that culminates in Jesus Christ. And he, Jesus, is giving his disciples and all who would follow after him instruction. Instruction for what? Instruction for where to look. He's teaching them where to look, where to orient themselves, where to focus attention. Jesus is calling us to attention. He's trying to get our attention. What you and I fixate on, what we see will have a big effect on what we do. Big idea. Attend to God. This word attend, it actually, it's etymology, the the history of this word, it actually comes from the word tendon. It means to stretch. So attending is like a kind of stretching. It takes some effort to attend to God. We know that, right? 
We bog out in prayer. We bog out in our Bibles. We zone out when we're listening to the scriptures. We just zoned out for 20 minutes while I've been preaching this morning. Like we have a hard time attending, do we not? I just named it. All you who laughed, you're guilty. (laughs) Attend to God and be amazed at the way that he stretches, attends to you and I. We've got to look up, church. We have to look up. If our attention is only around what's happening to us and the circumstances around us and not above us, how in the world will we know that God is in it with us? How in the world are we going to know if the, in the stampede of voices that are competing for our attention, how will we recognize a voice that we have rarely heard and not trained ourselves to know? We must look up. If we want to have authentic joy and love, we've got to look up. If we want to lean into greater joy than we already have and learn to accept and embrace God's love for us, which is so hard for many of us to do, we have to look up. If you and I want to learn to love God back in a healthy and consistent way, we've got to look up. And if we want to love others with the kind of goodness and justness and righteousness that, and affection that Jesus loves people with, We have to look up. The New Testament teaches us this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. We've got to look up. The writer to the Hebrews would say, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. What? Keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping our eyes on him. Why? He is the pioneer. He's the perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that laid before him, he endured. He took the cross. He despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer finishes up this thought with, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Consider it so that you won't grow weary and give up. All of life, we have to look up. We have to look up. To look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. You would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You're you're not quite there yet. You're curious, but you're like, man, where do I start? I would encourage you, please read the the first four sketches of his life in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then when you're done there, go to Romans in an easy translation and just read through it. And as you read a prayer, though you may not believe, Lord, open my eyes. If you're real, show me. If you want to be honest, you've got to engage the first person sources. You've got to engage the historical sources. You can't just take what I'm telling you or what the internet's telling you or what somebody else is telling you. Read it. Listen to it for yourself. Maybe you're new to faith and you're like, man, I'm stoked. Like, Where do I start? I'll get to that in a moment. Maybe you're coasting. You're just adrift and you know it. I haven't really given it much thought. Nah. Mm. 
Maybe you're squeezed and overwhelmed. You're like, how? How? Little babies underfoot in your arms. Like, how in the world am I going to attend to God? How do I fit it in? Maybe you're struggling with your faith. You've been living through a season of significant discouragement. To be honest, the language of what's the point is your internal language. Like you're on the brink. It feels, that, that, that phrase feels very familiar to you. Maybe you're resistant to disciplined living. You're, you're, you're drifting, but you actually resist order in your life. You need to be called up. Maybe a fresh look and a fresh approach would become a real benefit to you. Who in your world lives their life with some sense of order? Maybe you could go to them with the question, I'm drifting, I don't know where to start, I'm a little bit afraid, all kinds of resistance internally, but I see this in you, could you help me work it out? Work order into my life. And maybe you're the person in the room who's just ready you just need to push. Like, let's go. Put me in, coach. Where do I start? Here's what I want to ask of you, church. No matter where you are in, in that paradigm, I want to ask a couple of things of you. The first thing is to bury yourself in John chapter 15. Just the first 17 verses. It's not even the whole chapter. Just marinate, soak. What other kind of language can I use? Season yourself in the text of John chapter 15. We have an app on our website that's free. It's called Dwell. You can download it and listen to it. Put it on a sleep timer. Throw your earbuds in. Parent your phone downstairs, away from the bedroom. Push play, earbuds in. Go up to the room, fall asleep to John 15 on repeat. Read it in the scriptures. Marinate in John chapter 15. Another thing that I wanna ask you is to prioritize this gathering. You're boring. Sorry, I'm reading God's word. If any of us are humble and credible, at some point, I, God's word is open before us. Surely we have something to learn. Theology is being sung before us. We're praying together. We're a community. There's life here. You can feel it. I'm not just looking to check boxes and build a big church. I want a healthy church. I want a healthy family. I want to live among you as you live among one another, as we exalt Christ together, as we serve our people around us, we do not do this well on our own. We need each other. Maybe you're like, yeah, I've been doing the Sunday thing, but I, I like a little more toward the center. Communities, we have communities. We have smaller groups of people meeting. Fill out a connect card. We do not ghost you when you fill out connect cards, when you ask for prayer, when you reach out. I will personally respond to you. Please engage. We need one another. We need one another. Next week, we are going to talk through what it means to bear fruit from good roots or through good roots. I want to pray for us, and then we are going to take communion. Father, we love you, and we don't know how to love you. Some ways we do know how to love you, but there is more loving of you to be learned. So would you teach your people how to love you, how to receive your love, how to take it in? We resist. We think of ourselves, maybe not in our, the words in our actual brains, but 
in our heart of hearts is unlovable or distant or too dirty for you to come near to us. No, 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 no. That's religion. The gospel is that you came to us in our filth and our brokenness and our wayward, sinning, rebellious hearts, and you made a way. Thank you, Jesus. Would you call people in this room right now to faith in you, to look to you, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 700th time, but time and time again, we aim to be a community who looks to you, who confess our sins, because we've got nothing to hide. If the cross was necessary, like, it doesn't make any sense for me to try to clean myself up. You've already done that work for me, and it's finished work. You've done that for every person in this room who looks to you in faith. So call us to you, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.